Thanks, worship team. Appreciate you guys. Well, good morning again. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, I do love being together, and, and I do love what God is doing in our little church family as he is changing us, shaping us, growing us to follow Jesus. And uh, a few weeks ago, we started a series of messages that we are calling Following Jesus Together, where we are looking at what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and the word in the scriptures is the word disciple. And we are also looking at how since no one stands alone, God's design is that you and I would follow Jesus together. Um, I want to give a quick thanks to uh, Heidi, who preached last week, and Anna the week before. Thank you, ladies, for jumping in. Well done, well done. Now, when I opened this series three weeks ago, I talked about how in the Bible there's no such thing as being a Christian, quote-unquote, without actually also being a disciple of Jesus. And we got into that a bit um, uh, in that message. But, but, but for all kinds of reasons, I, I do know that many of us may have been raised, and especially if we were in a church context, um, assuming that we could do one without the other. Well, you could be a Christian and not a disciple. But the problem is that, that Scripture does not support that notion anywhere. And I don't know about you, though, when, when I see a statement like that, it can be a little heavy. I mean, like I know that... I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I, I want to follow Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the big problem in wearing the label, I guess, disciple, is uh, I know me. <laughs> and I fail all the time. You know, sometimes I wonder if it's easier to be more comfortable just wearing the label Christian and not disciple or not calling ourselves followers of Jesus. Um, maybe it is because we... Do know that we fail, we, we blow it. And, and maybe, and this is just my imagination, but, but maybe when I wear the label Christian, at least I still feel this loose connection. Maybe I'll go, well, at least then I'll maybe go to heaven when I die, which again, by the way, that idea isn't found anywhere in scripture as well. There's nowhere in the Bible that says all you got to do is just pray a prayer that gets you into heaven, and then optionally, if you want, you can add on this discipleship thing where... You know, the rest of our life, being a follower of Jesus, that's a bonus. It's just not necessary. Well, that idea is not actually in Scripture either. And I wonder if sometimes the way the word disciple lands and maybe some of the resistance we could have to, to really trying to attach to that word and go, wow, that's what I want to describe my life as a disciple of Jesus. I wonder if it's sometimes I think, ah, well, maybe I'm just a second-class Christian, um, not quite sharp enough, you know, and I don't have my stuff together enough to actually, you know, declare that I am a disciple when I describe my walk with Jesus, um, which again, a lot of that for us, I think, can be because our failures and weaknesses um, make it hard to call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus. Thank you. Um, I mean, again, I know how often I fail. I often look at what I kind of line up to mean disciple, and I compare that to, you know, what Jesus invites me as, into as a disciple with how I actually live my own life. Um, and I go, well, uh, a disciple? Like, I, I wish I could confidently say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I also know that there's so many ways that I fall short. 
I mean, some of us, and I admit that sometimes I, even though I know better, we think of, of disciples of Jesus as these top-notch, rarely sinning, shining examples of biblical wisdom and unending love for everyone. And if I really wanted to call myself a disciple of Jesus, wouldn't I need to do a better job at getting my stuff together? And I know that some of us have those kinds of questions stirring in our heads. And so to answer that question, today I want to bring a teaching that I actually think is very essential for us who really want to know what it means to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus. And I think this is actually incredibly important to understand. Um, and what I want to do to get us there is take a deeper look into the first century world that Jesus lived in, and I want to look at what, what it means in that context to be a disciple. And I want to do that by looking at how rabbis and disciples operated back in those days. So our main text today is going to be Matthew chapter 4, so you can turn there if you want. It'll also be on the screen in a moment. We're going to start in verse 18, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. We'll come back to that a few times. And buckle up, here we go. This is, by the way, the calling of Jesus' first disciples. This is early in his ministry. It has just launched. It is just getting going. This is the calling of his first disciples, which I think helps us get a better picture of what a disciple actually was. So maybe even picture this scene as we read it. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, by the way, that phrase for follow me, uh, he speaks it in Aramaic, and it's, let's see if I can even pronounce this right, lahakarai, lahakarai. Now, to me, just hearing that phrase, lahakarai, actually sounds kind of strong, um, sounds uh, inviting. It sounds like something bigger than maybe, you know, hey, just, you know, be my friend or invite me into your heart. Now, lahakarai means follow me. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Verse 20, at once, it says, at once, like immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, Zebedee, Dudah, anybody ever think of Zebedee? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Ooh, yikes. Um, <laughs> seeing if you're awake. All right, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were with their father preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and check this out, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. So, now first thing, do you ever read this story? Have you ever heard this passage and maybe wondered, why these first disciples responded like that and just followed Jesus. I mean, all these movies of, you know, the blue-eyed Jesus, you ever see this guy? Like the blue-eyed Jesus back in the day, it just kind of makes it look like this blue-eyed Jesus wandered up. There's these dudes doing their job, you know, basically they're fishing. And this rabbi guy, whom they've never seen, just kind of saunters up to them with his, with his long, flowing Fabio hair flapping in the wind, right? Flashes his steel blue eyes, which would be weird since he was Jewish, but just steel blue eyes in the movie, right? And says, follow me. And then these like tractor beam powers kick in and they say, yes, master, we will follow, right? And they just kind of, like it seems like a Jedi mind trick or something. Is that just me? It just seems odd that they would respond and boom, there they go. 
Well, there's a lot more going on in this scene, and I think that's part of where it helps to know some of this historical context of how the rabbis and disciple culture worked back in that day. Um, because there were lots of rabbis. Jesus was not by any stretch the only rabbis. There were many, many rabbis. There were many disciples of those rabbis. So I just want to take a few minutes here and look at how the idea of rabbis <clears throat> and disciples worked back in the day of the first century Jewish culture, this, this world that Jesus lived in. And by the way, lots of people have done great scholarship and great work over the last couple decades that I've been able to understand this more and more for probably the last 20-ish years. A guy named Ray Vanderland is fantastic. He actually taught a guy that a lot of people heard about for a while. Uh, Rob Bell used to talk a lot about these things. Um, writers like N.T. Wright, uh, Dallas Willard, Dave Johnson, many others have contributed to what I'm sharing um, today. But here is how a student, becoming a student, how becoming a follower, how becoming a disciple of a rabbi worked for the Jews in Israel in the first century. Now, the, the Jewish education system was made up of three primary stages. There was Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Beit Midrash. So the first one, Beit Sefer, ages five to 10, uh, was how old those kids were. Now, Beit Sefer is kind of like, I think, our idea of elementary school, uh, except it's taught in the synagogue by the local teacher who was usually a rabbi of some level. And, and, and the rabbi got really good at communicating and teaching the kids. He, he, would, he would come up with these, these very common object lessons, maybe even early in the teaching where he would put honey on the students' fingers and then tell them that God's word tastes like honey on the tongue. And then he would have them taste the honey. They're very good at creating tactile experiences to help these kids connect the dots between how good God's word was uh, being, being it, the sweetest thing maybe they'd ever tasted. And so they were really good at that. Now, during this time, this age 5 to 10, um, good Jewish boys, and in many villages, at least in this first phase, there were girls um, in these as well. Um, but they memorized, get this, they memorized the entire Torah, five books of the Bible. Anybody know what five books of the Bible make up the Torah? Genesis. Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books memorized <laughs> by the age of 10. Now, they didn't divide it up in verses like we have today, but <clears throat> that's 5,812 verses of the Bible memorized by age 10. Listen, um, I thought about myself at... At age 10, I actually won a contest, you know, in Sunday school at the church that I was at, where I got to go to summer camp for free because I memorized the most verses. Anybody want to guess about how many verses I memorized to win the prize on that? 10, like somewhere between 10 and 15, yeah. <laughs> 10 and 15, nowhere close to 5,812, right? But in first century Israel, by age 10, all these students knew the Torah they all knew it, which, by the way, you hear Jesus kind of quoting bits and pieces through the Gospels of different parts of Scripture, and they all would have known it. Like, nobody had their own copy at home. You might have one copy in the synagogue in a village because it was very expensive. You know, the Gideons weren't around yet. So you just, you know, that's what it... So you memorized these Scriptures. Memorized. So, okay, next, next stage here is Beit Talmud. This is ages 10 to 14, 
Um, and around the age of 10 or so, there was kind of this weeding out process. And, and, and after that point, only the very best of students were allowed to continue on to the next stage, again, Beit Talmud. And what happened with the other students is they were all, you know, blessed and sent home. You know, hey, go home, learn the family trade, the family business, which would maybe be carpentry or, uh, or uh, sandal making or wine making or fishing. Uh, you would be sent home to, to learn the family trade. But if you made the cut in Beit Talmud, you went on to learn the rest of what we would today call our Old Testament, um, the books of Joshua through Malachi, right? Joshua through Malachi, um, or otherwise known as Malachi, the great Italian prophets, right? That's a stolen joke. See, I'm trying. I'm going to stop soon. I'm going to try that second service anyway. All right, so um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Oh, by the way, in this phase here, um, where they're memorizing all the scriptures here, uh, how old was Jesus when, when his parents had to come back and find him in the temple area? How old was he? Anybody remember that story? Twelve years old. So he would have been in this phase, and Luke 12 tells us they found Jesus in the temple courts, sitting amongst the teachers, so they would have been rabbis and scribes, listening to them and asking them questions which is how this worked, by the way. There were a lot of questions back and forth. It wasn't just about spitting out knowledge and facts. It was learning to ask questions to demonstrate that you really grasp the context. So Jesus is asking questions. The scripture says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus probably, most likely, went through this as well. It would have been normal. He was raised in Galilee where this was a very big deal. So... Now, it wasn't unusual, by the way, for, uh, for a good Jewish boy to have the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, memorized by the age of 14 at the age, end of this Beit Talmud um, <clears throat> time, which is, again, they didn't divide up in verses, but that's 23,145 verses memorized. Wow. Wow. All right, so then next, next here. At the age of 15, almost all of these students would finish their education. But the best of the best of the best would continue on to Beit Midrash. And they would learn to even more uh, deeply apply and integrate all that they had learned. Many of these students by now had made it a goal of becoming a rabbi one day, which would take the next 15 years. So rabbis began their public ministry, if they made it to that place by about the age 30, and by the way, how old was Jesus when he began his public ministry? Anybody? No? So it totally just, age 30, it just lines up with this whole structure of how they do this. Now, interestingly, about this section of education, again, Beit Midrash, these best of the best of the best would find a rabbi to learn from. Now, each rabbi had a different interpretation, uh, oftentimes their own interpretation on how to live out the Torah, the, the law of Moses, what many of us know, part of that is the Ten Commandments. For instance, one of the Ten Commandments would be, uh, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, that is in the law of Moses, and many of us maybe even have some of the Ten Commandments memorized. Um, but the question that these students would be asking 
would be how does that law in the law of Moses get applied? So they would wonder, okay, so how, how, how can a faithful Jew, like what could a faithful Jew that's trying to obey Torah, what could they do on this day of rest on Sabbath and still keep the Sabbath day holy, right? Now, one rabbi might say, well, you are allowed to walk somewhere on the Sabbath. You, you can walk somewhere. But, but the distance you are allowed to walk can't be any farther than the distance would be from your home to the synagogue, and if you go farther than that, then you are not honoring the Sabbath. You are breaking the Sabbath. That would be his interpretation. But another rabbi might say, well, no, 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 no. Listen, you can, you can actually go twice the distance from your home to the synagogue because you've got to get back, right? So whatever you do, right, you can go twice the distance. And they would really just kind of divide these things out into very, very particular teachings about how to, you know, observe the commandment. I mean, you'd have the commandment, which everyone would memorize. You'd have the law of Moses. But then these rabbis had an interpretation of those rules and what, it requ- uh, what was required in order to actually obey those laws. Now, a rabbi's interpretation, their rules, was called his yoke. It was called his yoke. That was his version, Right? And when you, a disciple of a rabbi, studied under a rabbi, you took his yoke upon you. Now, those of you that know a little bit about scripture and the New Testament, can you see where I'm going with this? There's a verse in Matthew 11 where Jesus actually talks about a yoke. And in fact, let's read this out loud together up on the screen, Matthew 11. Let's read this together. Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So picture this verse here, right? Among many rabbis, this rabbi, Jesus, comes upon the scene saying that his yoke is easy. His burden was light. I mean, unlike the typical rabbi of the day, Jesus is not about endless lists of rules and regulations. So when we see Jesus using a word like this, the word yoke, he's not just picking words out of the air. He's speaking like a rabbi would speak. Very common in that day. And for me, that just helps a lot of this stuff make more sense to remember the culture, to remember that Jesus was a rabbi. So let's jump back here to the Jewish process of uh, education. Let's say you're in that 15-year-old range there. Now, if you made it this far, after a couple years, what you would do is then find a rabbi you admired, and you would kind of apply to become his Talmud is the word, the, the, the Hebrew word. Talmud, you become his disciple. And when you found a rabbi that you wanted to apply to, you would go and sit at their feet, which was your request to learn. By the way, anybody remember one of us, two sisters who sat at the feet of Jesus? Anybody? There you go. Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary sat at the, that means she was a disciple. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Jesus reversed some of those roles that the culture had eliminated women from. And that's a beautiful thing right there. But you would sit. If you wanted to be a disciple, you would sit at their feet. That was your request to learn. 
And then in that culture, the rabbi would examine you, question you, this hopeful disciple, asking questions and really putting you through a series of tests to see if you were worthy to be their disciple. And rabbis were able to be super selective because back in those days, becoming a religious ruler was a highly prestigious position. And many Hebrew boys longed to become, you know, they dreamed of this. They didn't dream of being, you know, football players or actors or YouTube or rock stars, you know. They, they didn't have those things. Many of them dreamed of becoming rabbis. So these rabbis could choose the smartest, the, the most talented boys to be their disciples, which, friends, we have to remember this part. They chose the smartest, the best to be their disciples. And rabbis were very demanding because when a rabbi would say yes and choose a disciple, they were choosing someone who they believed could become just like them. And not just know the knowledge that they knew, but someone who could do what they did. And then, what would happen then for years now, these, these disciples would spend the next number of years following around their rabbi, imitating them in every way, hoping that one day they could become a rabbi too. Some of you have, may have heard um, the, this, this phrase I'm about to say. There, there were sages from the Jewish Mishnah um, that, that would say this quote to, to disciples as a blessing. They'd say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And where, where that origin came from is, is that these rabbis were super passionate. They were very animated. They would spend their days taking their disciples with them everywhere they went, and they would travel from place to place. And as these rabbis traveled, they would literally kick up a cloud of dust. And these, these disciples would be sticking so close to the rabbi that, that um, at the end of the day, these disciples would literally be covered in the dust that their rabbi kicked up. Thus the blessing, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Walking so closely that you are actually covered in the dust of your rabbi. That's how closely you follow. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably need an antihistamine if that were the case here. But I digress. Now, even in this process, there was always the possibility that if even you made it this far and years into the making here, maybe the rabbi would go, you know what, you are not the A squad. You are not Ivy League. You are not the best of the best of the best. And if that was the case and he decided to cut you loose, he might say something like, obviously, you know Torah. You know the word of God. You love God, but you don't have what it takes to be just like me. So go home, learn a trade, have a family, and pray that maybe one day your children might become a rabbi, which I think would have been really disappointing after this many years but they only took the best of the best of the best. But let's say that didn't happen to you. If the rabbi believed that this disciple did have what it took, listen to what he would say. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. When a rabbi says, come, follow me, he is saying, I believe that you can become like me. Come and be my disciple. Now, with all of that background that I just gave you, Let's look back at our passage from today in Matthew 4. Matthew 4. And remember, at the age of 30 here, when a rabbi generally began his public teaching and training of disciples, here's Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. Right? Check this out. Right? This Jesus guy 
This new rabbi everyone is hearing about because he's performed miracles and has powerful, authoritative teaching. He comes along, and in this passage, we see that he chooses Peter and Andrew, who this verse here says they were what? They were what? Fishermen. Fishermen. Now, the fact that they were fishermen tells us what? Right, they had not made the cut. They didn't make the cut. They were B team, they were maybe C team, right? Somewhere along the line, a rabbi would likely have told them they weren't the best of the best and sent them to learn a trade. So Peter and Andrew were not top notch. They were not cream of the crop. Yet, Jesus goes to these guys, the the not good enoughs, and he calls them. He chooses them. Hope family, let that sink in. Let that sink in. When Jesus chose his team, when he drafted his team of disciples who were going to build his movement, the movement that would bring about the most important shift in the history of our planet, the people that he chose were the not good enoughs. Verse 19, Jesus said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Now again, if you're like me, for a long time, this scene hadn't made sense to me. Because again, it was like going, oh man, here's this rabbi guy walking down the beach. And I mean, yeah, Peter and Andrew are probably learning the family business. This is important. In fact, their family well-being is probably dependent on how well they learn this trade. They probably got a lot of money wrapped up in this equipment. But now, knowing what I just talked about with rabbis and calling disciples, can you imagine what it would have been like for them (laughs) to have a rabbi say, Come follow me. Come follow me. Remember, the rabbi's saying, you, I believe you can be like me and do what I do. They would be looking at each other going, whoa, here's a rabbi that believes that, 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 that we can do what he does. He believes that we can be like him. This is the chance of a lifetime. And if that was you and you knew what this invitation meant and we knew how like second chance surprise it was, we would of course absolutely drop our nets and follow him on the spot. And so they do, they do, which makes it, it it makes perfect sense now that we understand how Jesus calling disciples and how rabbis and disciples worked. Jesus was a rabbi. He was calling disciples and he thinks they're good enough, even though other rabbis did not. He's giving them a chance to fulfill their dream. So of course they drop what they're doing and they follow the rabbi. And then of course the story continues and comes across James and John. They're fishing with their father Zebedee. Next slide here. Fishing with their father. And if they are, again, apprentices learning how to fish, again, they haven't made the cut either. They're not following another rabbi. They were not the best of the best. They were not good enough. And think about this, guys. Like, how old were they probably here? Were they like 15, 16? I mean, we know that Peter was married, so he may have been 17, 18, maybe 20. But think about this. 
Jesus took some teenagers who didn't make the cut and changed the course of human history. See, I think it's so incredible to remember that if a rabbi calls you to be his disciple, he believes that you have what it takes. He has confidence that you can actually be like him. Jesus knows, and by the way, he is God. Jesus knows that when you and I become his disciples, he knows, he knows that we can do everything he's called and commanded us to do. There is nothing that he calls us and invites us to do that's impossible. Because unlike other rabbis, when we say yes to Jesus and we accept his invitation to follow him, he puts his spirit in us. He gives us a new identity. He rewires us, makes us God's children. He gives us a brand new DNA. And it's amazing what scripture says happens when you and I say yes to Jesus and enter into a relationship with him. When we begin to follow Jesus. John 15, 16, so amazing. It says, Jesus says, you did not choose me. Remember, I chose you. I chose you, says Jesus. See, there's a few things I think we can learn about being a disciple from this scene in Matthew 4. Jesus didn't choose the best. He chose the willing. It's that way today as well. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. I mean, he chose men so ordinary it was comical. He didn't choose any rabbis, any teachers, religious experts. He didn't even choose a synagogue ruler. Half the disciples were fishermen. One was essentially a crooked IRS agent, and at least one was a part of a terrorist group. I mean, hello, right? He chose the B team, the third string, because Jesus' work in this world is not about the best and brightest working hard for Jesus. It's about Jesus' power on display through ordinary people and what Jesus would do through them and what Jesus does through us. I love how honest this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Listen to this. It almost sounds like an insult, but it's not. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame, or another version says to confound the wise. Chose the foolish to confuse the wise. Next verse, God chose the, chose the weak things of this world to confound the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. And this is good news, friends, because if you feel like you're the B team, it's, you're in good company, right? <laughs> you're, we are the B team, but that's who he calls the weak, the foolish, the failed, the not good enough. He says, follow me, follow me, because our rabbi knows that we can be like him. We have what it takes, not because we're well-polished first stringers, but because he has filled us and given us 
what it takes. We are not the A team. In fact, that doesn't seem to be who God partners with in making the biggest impacts in our world, which for me is really good news because I fail all the time. If if Jesus required us to be the A-team or the first stringers, the best of the best with no doubts, no fears, no questioning, I would never have made the cut. In fact, most of the pastors that I'm in relationship with, we would admit none of us would have made the cut. This, This last season of COVID has been hard on just about every pastor that I know. Many who have said things like this directly to me, like, hey, I need to quit. I'm failing Like, I'm pointing our church to what the Bible says and to the words of Jesus, yet people just unhappy no matter what I say or do. I'm just doing my best to follow Jesus, to speak the truth in love, and I'm still failing. Maybe I just need to be done. Um, And, again, I'm not out here as some, like, like, above everybody else. Me, too. Like, I've had those same struggles, too. Like, we don't fake it around here. And, And I can say that I've had those thoughts more often than I wish. Um, and again, I know that as, you know, because I'm a pastor, lots of people think that I'm supposed to have my stuff together with no doubts or fears or questioning. But, but truthfully, the sign outside on the street here could say, you know, no perfect pastors. <laughs> we just cross out the people and put pastors in there too or just add it on um, because that's true. And by the way, I'm in a good place, I'm in a good place this week here. I'm not saying any of what I said for any kind of sympathy. I just felt like it's important for me to share one of my recent frailties and not some story from way back in my past, but just recent stuff that I'm working through with God and that God is working through in me. Because the truth is, you guys, there are no together people. Nobody's together. And if they look like they have it all together, that's a facade and maybe that's a problem that they need to deal with. See, we are all a mess in some area. We all struggle. We, we, when we get honest, we might get discouraged that we are not the caliber of disciple that we wish we could be. But hear me, friends, your shortcomings, my shortcomings, do not in any way make you a lesser person, a lesser disciple. They do not have the power to label you failed Christian. Your imperfections and minds, our doubts and failures, do not make us less valuable, less delightful, or less worthy of the Father God's love. You know, for me, I, I recognize that too often I scramble around, I'm trying to prove that I'm valuable, I'm, I'm worthy, but I stop long enough to know that I don't need to do that. When I stop long enough to be with Jesus, I realize... There's nothing for me to prove. There's nothing for you to prove. Jesus has already declared my worth and yours in what he's done for me and you in the cross and resurrection. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more and there is nothing you could do that would make him love you less. He declares, he says that I am loved, I'm secure in his love, that I'm enough. He says that I belong to him and that nothing can ever, ever change that. And at the end of the day, I am Christ in Doug Glenn, and I am growing up and I'm maturing as a disciple and I'm right on time. And so are you, Hope family. So are you. Worship team, will you come? I know that some of you 
can relate to the struggle to believe that what God says of you is actually true. Because so often we just see our failures, our fears, our doubts, our struggles, our sins. And it's easy to believe that the lie, um, it's easy to believe the lie that, that, that says that those things overshadow the love and the grace of God for you. And maybe you feel like, I'm just not sure what, I'm not sure if I have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. But I believe, as I was preparing for this message and praying over this again last night, I believe there's a truth that God wants to speak into that lie for us. And I believe he's saying to us, saying to you, to me, you are my beloved child. I've called you. I've chosen you. You belong to me. You are mine. I believe that God is saying to us, that Jesus is saying to us as a community as well, follow me, disciple. I've called you. I've put my life in you. You have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. I now live in you. And as my disciple, you can follow me into a life worth living. So will you trust me? Will you believe my truth over the lies that try to defeat and discourage you from living as my beloved disciple? Will you follow me? Friends, as Jim and Kelly sing this song, let's allow the words of this song to connect to our hearts and connect our hearts to the truth of how God sees us because he sees what we don't see. And the one who has chosen and called you to follow him speaks these words of truth over.